Stand with me as we look at our passage in Exodus 1, the great book of Exodus. Exodus 1, I'm going to start with verse 6. Catch this. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the holy word of God. Please be seated. All right, church, the great book of Exodus, the story of the deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt, you know, out of the land miraculously to the promised land. This is the central event in the Old Testament. This is the event referred back to more times than any other event in the Old Testament. Notice in the Psalms especially, but in the prophets, how it repeatedly refers back to this God's rescue of the people through the Dead Sea, through the Red Sea. It becomes the great emblem and motif and picture of what God does in Jesus to deliver us from our slavery to sin and to the freedom of forgiveness. So it's the picture in the Old Testament. It's a remarkable book. Genesis, I mean, Exodus 1 continues the book of Genesis. In fact, you ought to, we ought to look at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, not so much as five books, but as five chapters in one book, the Pentateuch, because it's all a unit. Uh, Moses uh, closes the last 25% of Genesis focusing on Joseph. Remember Joseph, Abraham, son Isaac, son Jacob, 12 brothers, one of which is Joseph. And so the book of Exodus kind of picks up and begins briefly with Joseph before it goes, it goes on. We see in verse 6 where we read that, that Moses died, I mean Joseph dies and all that generation, but God's promise stays sure. Verse 7, but the people of Israel 
were fruitful and increased greatly. Notice how emphatic. Five times. They were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong and so that the land was filled with them. So despite the persecution, despite the challenge, the oppression that we just read about, despite the fact that Joseph, one of their own, no longer prime minister, the people multiplied. They fulfilled the promise of God in Genesis 128 when he commands Adam and Eve, just born, just created. He says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That same language, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. All three of those phrases are found in Exodus 1-7. It's fulfilled. Fruitful, multiply, it says in 7, uh, so that the land was filled with them. But the Hebrew term, Eretz, it can be translated either earth or land. So it's using the same Hebrew language, uh, picking up on it purposely, saying that God's command is fulfilled. And remember in Genesis, how God continually says to the patriarchs, Look, I'm going to multiply your descendants. There are going to be as many as the stars in the sky. And in, and in Exodus, we see that despite persecution, despite opposition, because God's hand is upon these people, they do multiply and grow strong. That is the main purpose of Exodus 1. We're going to see that the main application of our day is elsewhere with abortion. So that's coming. But I do want you to understand that the purpose, the theological purpose of the book of Exodus is that God's promise of blessing uh, stays true, remains strong, because God's hand was on the people despite their suffering. Now, it wasn't easy. They had suffering. They had, in fact, 400 years of suffering, but God's hand was upon them. And I think about us because we suffer. Life is hard. You know, down economy, I'm hearing more and more people losing jobs and folks struggling with that, and, and there are physical problems, and mental problems, and relational problems, and marriage problems, and, you know, we're living in a broken world. Uh, but, but, but if you are one of God's people, then God's hand is upon you no matter what. And just as God never removed his eyes from his people in Israel, uh, he will never take his eyes off of you. And know that this morning, know that this morning, that God's hand is upon you. His eyes are upon you. It may not be easy, but he will see you through, just as he saw the people of Israel through. All righty. In verse 8, there is a turning point because it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now Joseph, uh, one of the 12 brothers and tribes of Israel, uh, his jealous brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt, and that's how the slavery all began. He was falsely accused, thrown in prison, 13 years in prison, and then God miraculously raised him up as prime minister. Again, God's hand is upon you. He will see you through. So now the king of Egypt doesn't know about Joseph, and so it's bad news for the people of Israel. And so verse 9, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And we know how, how great the horror is that is coming because of that. Lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against it. There's dread of the people. And so we have the first of a fourfold level of oppression that's going to escalate and escalate and escalate four times. Verse 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, they built for Pharaoh store cities, Python, and Ramses. And by the way, uh, 
using slavery, enslaving people for economic gain. We see it first in the Bible here, but of course we've seen it in history throughout our world, including tragically in our own country in the 1800s and before, uh, afflicting people with slavery for economic gain for others. And indeed, we see that in our world today more than ever. 27 million people enslaved, many in the sex slave industry, some in uh, other kinds of labor and work. 27 million slaves, $150 billion business globally. And we think the cruelty of the, of the Egyptians to enslave people back then, and yet uh, in supposedly the modern world, it's happening just as bad and more so. So they're afflicting the people. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. Notice the strong language, how severe it was. Bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Just the oppression of God's people. And, uh, and yet, God's blessing upon them. For in verse 12, we see earlier there, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Isn't that something? Why is that? Why the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied? Because God's hand was upon them, God's blessing upon them. If God's hand is upon you, if you are one of God's people, no matter what you go through, no matter how you might suffer, God's eyes are upon you, His hand is upon you, and He will see you through. He will see you through. Take heart this morning. Now, when it says that the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, that is a picture of persecution in the church throughout Christian history. The more persecution of the church, the more the church multiplies. It's just what happens. The greatest example in history, uh, probably the greatest revival in history, most likely happened in China, 1949 under Mao. They kicked out all the missionaries, the legacy of Hudson Taylor, uh, they persecuted, killed some of the Chinese leaders, the Christian leaders. The church had to go underground. We didn't know what was going on there. And, and then 40 years when, later, when we knew what about it, the, the church had just exploded from 50 million to 90 million people. It was incredible. The more they oppress, the more the church multiplies. And the way it is put, a famous sentence about that, is that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When martyrs' blood is shed for Christ, the church is going to grow. Some people are concerned about the United States because the church is growing around the world, but not in the United States, not in Western Europe. We're seeing some good signs, but it's not yet turned around. Um, there's no, no real persecution shed blood here, though it seems like it's coming. Some people are calling for, you know, it'd be good to have a little persecution. Well, you know, we don't want to ask for that, but we, wanna, we want to be all in for Christ no matter the level of persecution. So let's don't wait. Let's be all in today. So they were oppressed, and yet they multiplied. Now, Exodus 1 uh, telescopes 400 years of history. Between Joseph in 1800 and Moses coming back to take over the country later in Exodus, in 1400, 400 years, twice, nearly twice the history of the United States. So, so uh, this was a lot of suffering that they had. Okay, 15, the, the, the oppression escalates. First, they oppress them with hard work. Then they enslave them. Now, thirdly, it takes a whole nother level. 
Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve his midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, he shall live. Almost reversing what we've seen in China, sparing the girls and not the boys. Um, you think, you know, how could he? How could he? But, but, but you think in our day, even a bigger problem, how could we? How could we? The parallel, the parallel, the most applicant, applicational, relevant thing to uh, Exodus 1, the infanticide of ancient Egypt is clearly the abortion of modern America and beyond. I mean, that's the crying parallel here. You think, well, how could Pharaoh, by the way, when you read Pharaoh, that's just their word for king, like Caesar is the, is the Latin, the Roman uh, word for king. It's Pharaoh king. How could this king order the slaughter of baby boys throughout his empire? The call for genocide. You know, it parallels. It's a foreshadowing from Exodus 2 to Matthew 2 when there's another evil king who calls for the slaughter of baby boys in the time of Jesus. Herod, jealous and fearful, just like Pharaoh is fearful. And, and, and just how God spares the baby Moses to raise him up to rescue his people, God spares the baby Jesus and raises him up as a rescuer for all the peoples of the world, including you and me, rescuing us from our slavery. God spares him, ironically, sparing the baby Jesus by taking him back to Egypt, fulfilling prophecy before he can come back. And so, you know, the, God is at work sparing despite the atrocities of, uh, well, that was, I think we see uh, the first raging anti-Semitism, which is, in, which is followed uh, almost every century, none greater than the last century with the Holocaust. We're going to see the escalation continue to, es uh, the, the infanticide continue to escalate, the oppression to escalate, which given human depravity is what evil does. Think about the sexual immorality and sin in our day and how it has escalated during many of our lifetimes, and that's going to continue unless good people stand against the injustice and the evil. The only reason that slavery was ended in the United States and Britain was because good people like William Wilberforce and John Newton, the former slave trader who wrote Amazing Grace, stood and labored and persevered for decades against the evil of slavery. And it's the same thing is called for and needed in our day. Martin Luther King once said, we shall have to repent in this generation, not so much for the evil deeds of wicked people, but for the appalling silence of good people. The appalling silence of good people. And we don't want to be part of that. You know, when you think about um, uh, the, the slavery alone in our world and 27 million slaves, and, and we have people in our midst who are, are called to, to, to focus on that battle. Dennis and Bobby Marks from our own church leading Redeems Ministry, uh, uh, um, Christian Rose, leading the Houston chapter of Love 146. Think about Joshua Debs Walker, who are involved with many ministries, including human trafficking, how they're uh, giving themselves and called to that. We think about the parallels to abortion and how all of us are part of the fight and the calling against injustice in every way. Doesn't mean that all of us is our primary ministry, but all of us have to stand against it and oppose it in any way that God calls us to. 
So in 15 and 16, we have what has been called subtle infanticide. Pharaoh, probably in more of a secret way, goes to the midwives. Look, when the Hebrew boys are born, see if it's a boy and kill him. You know, did they strangle? Did they, uh, you know, suffocate? Uh, You know, did they do it on the sly? You know, it's just kind of a secret thing here. And later on, it's going to be open when it's not working. More of a, of a private, subtle infanticide. And then 17. 17 is the turning point of the passage. But the midwives feared God. The people in America were killing babies left and right. But the believers feared God. We stood against it. We, we cried out against it. We prayed against it. We, we uh, you know, uh, did not go along with the culture, the, the Hebrew midwives, but they feared God. And so they did not go along with the culture. They did not go along with Pharaoh, even at the risk of their lives. The reverence for God will always lead for the reverence for life. If there's no reverence for God, there's probably going to be no reverence for life. If there is true reverence for God, then there will be reverence for life in all of its forms. It will. Church, the application for us, greater than anything, is the abortions of our day. 58 million babies since 1973. I don't know how you guys feel about that. But sometimes I reflect, okay, I, I turned 18 years old officially kind of an adult in 1972. In 1973, abortion became legal in our country. And so all of my adult life, the slaughter of babies. And you think about 58 million babies, and because, you know, that's too much reality for most of us. I mean, let's just be frank. We don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about that. But that's reality. And it'd be just much better to kind of move that outside. But this is not just a statistic uh, the first service, I saw a five-day-old baby come in here, born Wednesday. Saw a bunch of little babies, newborns coming in there all over here, by the way. Love that. Uh, each one is precious, precious, precious. And we have seen the slaughter of 58 million. I don't think my grandkids are very responsible. They're, they're not adults. But on my watch, in my lifetime, my adult lifetime, 58 million. And many of you other men and women are just like me. We've allowed it. We share in it. And uh, the Hebrew midwives, but they feared God. And as we fear God, we will say no. We will say no. They had courage and they had compassion. And they said no. When we fear God, we fear no one else. If you don't fear God, you're going to fear everything else. We see elsewhere in the Bible to obey the government, but, but you don't obey the government when they tell you to do something that conflicts with the Word of God. The Hebrew midwives show us here, you obey the government unless it is sin to obey the government, and then you obey God alone. And that's in our day too. You know, um, um, what can we do? A lie of the enemy is you can do nothing, just keep about your business. We'll come and see a bit more some of the alternatives. But the, but the Hebrew midwives stood because they feared God. They stood against it. You know, sometimes I think that uh, because World War II is a special area of interest to me, and just the, the slaughter of six million Jews and, of course, many others, is just incredible to me. 
And I could just hope and think that if I had lived in Nazi Germany or if I'd lived in anywhere in Europe where Jews were being sent to their death, uh, I hope I'd have been among those hiding them at the risk of my life. I hope you would have been too. It's what God's people should have been doing. And when you think about, you know, if I'd been living in the deep south in, in the midst of slavery in our country, that hopefully I'd be like the abolitionists and like the folks on the Underground Railroad helping to rescue those dear people. But friends, this is our moment. Abortion. Greatest crisis of our day. And maybe of any day. 58 million in our country, 1.4 billion worldwide in the last 50 years or so. Um, what is our response? Let me be very clear that if you have had an abortion, if you've been part of abortion, uh, not only a woman having abortion, but uh, a man or a woman encouraging it and, and giving encouragement to it. A woman came to me afterwards, uh, the first service, and said, you know, a dear 18-year-old daughter whom I know said, you know, her dad wanted her to get aborted, but her mother said no. And she is a precious girl today. But if you have been a part of that, know that the grace of God is bigger than all of your sin. And Moses would later be guilty of murder. And David later would be guilty of murder. And Paul later would be guilty of murder. And some of God's uh, choice people have been guilty of murder. And God's grace is bigger than any of our sin. He gives us freedom. And, and that's the story of Exodus, the deliverance and the rescue of, 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 of freedom from slavery. And that's the story of the Bible. Sometimes we say unthinking things about people, and we don't know, maybe they've had an abortion or something, but if you say, you know, oh, I could never do that, you know, maybe you're not helping, but heaping guilt. And, and none of us could say, oh, I'd never do that, because every single one of us who are part of the church of Jesus Christ, by our sins, we have murdered the innocent Son of God. Are we not guilty of murder? I am. I am. My sins killed Jesus on the cross the greatest crime in history. And thank God he's a God of mercy and grace. And his grace covers all my sin. We'll celebrate that with communion later. Okay, the, uh, back to Exodus 1. The midwives feared God, and they said no. They couldn't go along with the culture at that point, even at the risk of their lives. Pharaoh, of course, calls them in. You know, they say, well, the, the Hebrew women are so vigorous, you know, they have babies before they come. I don't know if they lied about it. It's possible. And if so, that is a, a smaller sin by far than the sin of killing the boys. Or if, you know, they knew those Hebrews' wives were, you know, having a baby and they just took their own sweet time. And before they got there, well, lay behold, they're already born. I don't know. But... God loved it that they didn't kill babies and weren't part of it, weren't complicit in it, and he blessed them. He blessed them, gave them families of their own. So Pharaoh, angry, escalates more from subtle infanticide to open infanticide. In verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, not just the midwives, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. Okay, no longer any secret, no longer over there on the side. Open stuff now. Throw the boys into the Nile River. So, in our day, babies are being killed. What do we do? Again, it is a lie that we can do nothing. 
Uh, it is so fascinating to me that God uses two women primarily. I take that, that they were the supervisors over other midwives. The next chapter, if we would read on into uh, the, the rescue of the baby Moses, how God uses three other women, Moses' mother, at the risk of her lives, she was going to protect her baby boy, which is what godly women do. Um, Moses' sister, even Pharaoh's own daughter, a part of the rescue of, uh, uh, of baby Moses. Interesting that of the five people named as part of the stand against the, the infanticide, all five were women. Certainly that doesn't mean that uh, God does not uh, call men and women today to stand against the injustice of abortion, but I think women do have a special role. I mean, a woman can talk to a woman who is considering abortion uh, much more than a man can. Again, uh, all of us have a role, but particularly I think the women have a role. By the way, if you have had an abortion and you're listening to the lie of Satan that, well, you're now disqualified from the fight against abortion, that is such a lie. You are especially qualified because you can not only speak against abortion, you can talk about the grace of God in your own life that people need to know about. So that's a lie. Um, we all have a role. Okay, what do we do? What do we do? Well, first of all, I got several things here, but first of all, we pray. Because read history, and ultimately, there's no good reason why the, the whole Soviet bloc fell in, 19, in 1989, and I know that the prayers of God's people in Romania and Russia and other countries was behind that. We will not see a complete change in America until we have substantial revival and a spiritual transformation. But when we do, uh, abortions are going to dry up. That Planned Parenthood on South I-45, the Gulf Freeway, will close its doors if Houston becomes a city of God. It'll be one of the signs. Now look, as I'm going to get to, I am all for voting pro-life, all for it. But in my lifetime, we have seen several pro-life presidents, beginning with Jimmy Carter, and we've yet to have much of a dent with, against abortion. Certainly haven't had Roe versus Wade overturned. And I am all for voting pro-life. We've got a great responsibility but the deeper work is a spiritual revival and transformation in our country, and that will only come by prayer. And so we show up on Wednesday nights. We call 21 days of prayer and fasting for our community. We pray with all of our hearts for a spiritual revival in our country and in our city. And then we're going to see all kinds of changes made. So my first call for all of us is to pray for revival in our country and in our city. Secondly, vote in a, in a democracy, if you're not voting, you share in the, you're, you're complicit in the, in, the, in the act. I mean, we have a responsibility to vote pro-life. You know, that is just a, a, the, the, the inane, foolish comment that, uh, you know, that uh, don't be single issue. Well, if the single issue, the protection of babies, is far more important than everything else, then be single issue. This is not a political issue or a humanitarian issue or a social justice issue or a women's issue. This is a God issue. God creates babies in human life, and we stand against it. By all means, vote pro-life at the very least we could do. Remember again, the problem of repentance is not the deeds of wicked people, but the appalling silence of good people. Perhaps God has called you to serve in a, a ministry like 
the, the crisis pregnancy centers. Some of us in, at Woods Edge are involved with those. Perhaps God's given you financial resources and you, and you give. You give either through your church, you give directly through ministries, Montgomery County Right to Life, uh, other great ministries. Many of you have fostered and adopted babies, helping on that angle or helping to fund um, uh, helping to, to give to other families who do adopt. All of that is helping. Um, it's not obvious exactly what God has each of us do, but there are some things that we can all do, and we can all stand against injustice in all of its forms, including the greatest crisis of all, the abortion problem. Now, let me just say, uh, I just get so amped up when I think about this and, and, and concerned about it. But the call is not to anger. Remember, Jesus calls to speak the truth in love. And it's not to rant and rave and uh, our anger. That's just not going to be the most important thing. But speak the truth in love. Jesus, remember, full of grace and truth. We stand up. We pray. We vote. We give. We do whatever God calls us to end this terrible atrocity. Stand with me, please. Friend, if you're in the room and you've never trusted Christ and received his grace, no matter what you have done, friend, he offers you forgiveness, free for the taking. Just say yes to him. Breathe a prayer right now. Yes, Jesus, forgive me for my sin. I receive your grace. I receive your grace. Oh, God, he will save you. He will. Lord God, we cry out to you for revival, for transformation in our city and in our land. For Christ's glory, we pray. Amen.